was in another lifetime, one of toil and blood. When blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. I will be reading the scriptures tonight. Um, bear with me, it's kind of long, but it's, it's an exciting story. So, Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold it to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heavens opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed, clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations, and he will rule them, rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped in, in its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. you got to remember... Through Revelation, it's, it's not chronological about what happens next. It's what John sees next. Because the way all of these truths and realities and principles are coming to us are through images. 
because images have this amazing power to sort of get below our rational evaluation of life. They get us to think about actually what we're thinking about. They get us to reorient ourselves, not to just what's happening, but how we're processing what's happening. So they sort of work each chapter more like a symphony, like building on what's already been said. And John says something here in verse 11, that's been a theme and, and it's been building throughout the entire book that we need to sort of come back to when he says, and then I saw heaven opened. Every one of these new images, it begins with John seeing something. Then I heard, then I saw. And notice here he says uh, the past tense, then I saw heaven opened. Because Revelation, uh, it comes from the word apocalypse. That is, what we're seeing here is not uh, one day a cataclysmic event that will come and overwhelm our world. The word literally apocalypse means unveiling, as in the curtain is being pulled back. What's already here is being slowly and fully unveiled. So the phrase that you've often heard, the second coming of Christ, is actually not a very accurate biblical doctrine. Because what we're actually being told is it's more like Jesus has actually already come, begun working and doing these things. And what's happening is the myths of reality that you and I live by are slowly being removed and one day will fully vanish. That the rug that is being gonna be pulled out from under us to what we think we've been standing on has been firm life. It works a little bit like Thanos using the reality stone to one day show us the reality that we chose not to see before. And what we're seeing tonight is not that Jesus is going to come back, it's that he's already here and he's doing things. And what he's doing is asking us questions. And here's the three questions I'm gonna ask you from him being present and being on the move. It's what will you do with his weapon? What will you do with his invitation? And thirdly, what will you do with your life? First, what will you do with his weapon? So we see in the second half of this text, it's not really clear on the slide, but if you begin at verse 11, there's a real change when he says, then I saw heaven open. And what he sees then is a person. In the middle of heaven is a person. It says he's on a white horse. This is an image of war that's confirmed to us again in the latter part of the verse when he says he comes to judge and make war. And the one riding on the horse in verse 12, it says he has eyes like a flame of fire. That means he sees through everything. And then he has many diadems on his head. Those are crowns uh, in the ancient Near East. Uh, kings would sometimes wear multiple crowns on their head to signify that they reigned over multiple countries sort of suggesting this man, he answers to no one. It says, then he has a name that no one knows but himself. It was thought to believe that if you knew someone's name, especially a God, you could exercise control over them, suggesting this man is under no one's control. And then in verse 15, it says, he will strike down the nations and rule them with a rod iron. This is kingly language. And then in verse 16, it says on his robe is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
that was only said of Caesar. So what these images suggest is that there is this man who's not come to reason, but to take over. And he has but a single weapon to take over, a sword. Now, here's what's interesting about this whole scene. It's this man riding into battle, but there is no battle. Did you notice this? There's no army. There's, excuse me, there's no war scene that takes place. And the reason is he's not going into battle is because the battle has already been fought. See, the man is Jesus, and the battle has already been won at the cross. So what are these images consisting of? It's, it's Jesus coming towards us with his victory as the king with one weapon, his word. And what he's doing with his word is asking how we will respond to his victory. And what we're getting here is a very simple summary of the role of the Bible and the role it's meant to play in everybody's life. And that's that the role of the Bible in your life is to unveil who you are and what you think life is about. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what does the Bible do? Well, the author of Hebrews essentially says what the Bible does is expose spiritual nakedness. Now, what do I mean? If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve were originally created, it says they were naked and unashamed. They were satisfied in life. It was good for them to be fully exposed. But the minute in Genesis 3 that they turn away from God, they decide to be their own saviors and lords, they begin to know at the deepest level that they are radically unfit to be their own savior and Lord. And the instinct that everybody has when you're vulnerable and you're not fit to be vulnerable is that you have to cover up the nakedness. And so they do with fig leaves. And what fig leaves are, are our attempts to cope with our inability to be our own savior and Lord. What do I mean? Look, why do you, why do some of you, ne- are, are you never able to imagine dating someone who isn't really good looking? Or why are you constantly trying to perfect your reputation? Or why are you turning to things to numb your pain? You know, what those are are fig leaves. They're ways for you to cover your nakedness, to try to be your own savior, And what you're trying to cover your life with is as thin and as protective as a little leaf. And here's actually what's been happening to you with Christianity over your life. Jesus has been coming towards you with a sword, almost like poking at your little fig leaves and leaving you with an option. Either you're going to double down and try to grab for new fig leaves because he's unveiled and uncovered the ones that you're trying to cope with your life with, or you can let him do that and fall on your knees and ask him to clothe you. And the hard point to consider is that you can't be so naive as to think that you can suppress Christ and cover yourself with relationships or jobs or successes and think that the fear of vulnerability and nakedness will just go away. Uh, the 1999 excuse me, film uh, Magnolia is a mosaic 
of interrelated characters uh, in search of happiness and forgiveness and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. It is a line that is repeatedly mentioned throughout the film, quoting William Faulkner's, the past isn't dead. And over and over again in the movie, it says this line, we may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. Look, don't you realize that what you've put off in life and what you've tried to cover up is not going away? And what God's word is trying to do is to let you fully take it off and deal with the past and deal with your life. See, what will you do with this weapon? Are you gonna spend your life covering for the past that's not through with you? Or are you gonna let the word of God uncover it right now? What will you do with his weapon? But secondly, we have to answer the question, what will you do with his invitation? See, the point of this is not to scare us into conformity. Look, if you've ever been confronted with something, there's an instinct to believe right away that this is going to be followed by a threat. But it's just the opposite here. Exposure is not for humiliation. It's for invitation. To what? Look in verse 7. It says, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. A feast. Look, Jesus is trying to move in your life with his sword to offer you the joy of a wedding feast. Let me explain. In the ancient Near East, uh, engagement and weddings, they were a bit different. When a groom wanted to marry a woman, he went to the father not with a ring, but money to purchase her. And they would have a ceremony where a glass of wine would be toasted to seal the betrothal. It was, it was the cup of the covenant that sealed the engagement. And it was so permanent that breaking an engagement was the equivalent of divorce. And after that would happen, then the groom would leave and go prepare a place for the bride in his father's house. Sometimes up to a year he would spend doing this. And while he would be doing it, the bride would, would prepare herself with the money given by the, by the groom, preparing for the wedding. And no one knew the day or hour that he would return, but one moment the groom would dress himself up with his best mates and he would ride in and shout, the bridegroom is here, come out and meet him. And then the, the bride would come out dressed and ready to go and the wedding would immediately begin. And it would be the best food served. It would be drinks for everybody that it would go on for seven days and sometimes even 14 days. Now, if you've ever gotten close to Christianity or looked into it, some of that should sound familiar because the gospel works this way. Jesus comes to you as you are to purchase you with a price, his life. And to seal that engagement, he pours you a glass of wine and says, drink it. This is the cup of the new covenant. It is our engagement. And then in John 14, he says, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go prepare a place for us in my father's house. And one day, nobody knows the hour. Nobody knows the moment. And there's nothing in the book of Revelation that tells us any clues about when this will happen. He will come back prepared 
to bring his bride to a celebration that won't last a week or two, it will last for forever. And what this means is that heaven and salvation will be way more like a Saturday night wedding than a Sunday morning church service. My friend, uh, Matt Trexler at UCLA told me this. He said there was a study done one time on the happiest state. And uh, as we looked into it, it's pretty shocking to find out what the happiest state is because it says in this study, New York was the saddest and the happiest was uh, Louisiana. And that was pretty shocking to me because I wouldn't have even thought that would have been a top 20 happy state. But what the scholar who did this study found is that the reason that Louisiana is the happiest state is because it's built on a feasting culture. They throw a ton of food parties. And at the heart of Bayou culture is the idea of throwing a feast with your friends and family. All the time there's these crawfish, crawfish festivals and Cajun festivals. And people are incredibly happy because they live in a community of feasting and partying. Look, if you've ever thought about giving your life to Christ as a way of settling in life, and it's coupled with a fear of missing out on this world, you've never read Revelation 19, because what we're told here is that what awaits for us, if you're a Christian, is a party. And it's not going to be like most Christian parties you've been to, where there's punch and Chick-fil-A synthesizer music that's playing Hillsong. It's going to be everything that you need for the night of your life. It's going to be the best people. It's going to be the greatest of laughter. It's going to be the most entertaining stories. There will not be any fear of sitting at certain tables and whether or not these people will welcome you. There will be nowhere else to be. There will be no hurtful interactions. It will have the greatest food, the greatest drink, friendships everywhere. And at the end of the night, you don't have to be that lonely, awkward person who Ubers home alone because the greatest of intimacy will wait on you and take you home. You know what this, what this means is you have to stop living under the pressure that these four years at USC have to be the best four years of your life. Look, living up to that reputation makes an amazing university like SC unnecessarily disappointing. Look, if you believe that lie, you know what you'll do is you'll have to spend your college years doing everything you can to find some fig leaves. And you'll end up having to lie to yourself that this really was the best four years of my life. It was unbelievable because it's scary as hell to admit to yourself that it didn't live up to what I hoped it would be. Don't live in that lie. Live like a marriage feast awaits you and know that you're invited to it and it will be unprecedented. One of my friends, Stephen, he was, um, he, was, uh, he was crazy in love with this girl named Amy. But the problem was Amy was dating this dork, this loser, who was 
who wasn't doing anything about it. And um, they were, they'd been dating for several years. And Stephen just finally realized, I think I'm in love with Amy. So one night he uh, just went over to her house and knocked on her door and said, will you go for a walk with me? And she said, okay. And they were friends, so there was not, there was definitely background to be able to do that. So they go for a walk and they begin to talk and hang out. And then he says uh, at the end of the night, hey, can I come see you again tomorrow? And she's like, okay. So he goes and sees her again tomorrow. And uh, he makes her lunch and they're sitting on his, uh, his back porch. And he says, I'm gonna go off to grad school next year and I don't wanna go without you. I'm in love with you and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make you mine. He said, you don't have to answer that right now. I just want you to know how crazy I am about you. She said, okay. And he said, well, can we hang out this afternoon? She said, I have to go to work. He said, okay, can I come see you at work? And she said, okay. So he came during her work break, brought them chicken biscuits. They hung out, ate some food, laughed. And when it was time for her to go back in, he said, can I see you again tomorrow? She said, okay. So he came and he saw her again on Sunday night, took her for a walk. Then they went fishing, hung out, laughed, and then he had to go back to college. So he pursued her like this for several months. He wrote her letters. He sent her flowers. He even wrote her poems and pursued her like this. And then he came to her and he said, I'm in love with you. I want you to break up with him and be with me. And she said, no. And everyone just goes, why would she say no to that? I mean, some of you sit there and go, why would she say no? And I don't know why she did. But I'm asking you the same question right now. Why would you say no? Why would you turn that down? You are invited to the greatest feast that will ever exist. What will you say? Third and last question, what will you do with your life? See, if you face the weapon and you have the invitation in your hand, what now? It's, it's the question, what will you do with your life? Did you notice in verse 14 that it says, when the man on the horse rides out for a mission, he has an army behind him. It says the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, why are these people arrayed in fine linens? Well, we've just seen in verse eight that the fine linens are wedding attire. It's not exactly war garments. So what is this army doing? What they're doing is they're following their groom to pass out wedding invitations. See, the, the invitation is for everyone, and you play a role in that. See, the design of the gospel is never just for your personal experience. It, it's, it's meant to undress you and then redress you, hand you a wedding invitation, and then set you on a mission to invite everyone to it. You receive a blessing to go and be a blessing. And this is not like being thrown in some random movie 
where you're handed a gun by some soldier that you don't even know, and you're like, what is happening? And they just say, get to work, soldier. It's not like that at all. Look, the gospel of marriage is is meant to be so sweet to you, so comforting to your story, so paradigm shifting about who you are and what all of this is about, that it can't help but come out all the time with who you're around. You know, it's it's still the number one grossing movie of all time, Avatar. And when it was a when it came out, and people were going to see this movie in droves, unprecedented droves. It, w- it was really a cult- cultural phenomenon. People were like, "Why are why is everybody going to see this movie?" So James Cameron was asked, "Why do you think everybody want to go see your movie?" And he said, "This when people have an experience in the movie theater that's very powerful, they want to go share it." They want to go grab their friend and bring them so that they can enjoy it. They want to be the person that can bring them the news that is something worth having in their life. Look, if you you really believe that that is coming, that it's a marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's a wedding amongst all weddings, and it's an intimacy amongst all intimacies, how can you not want that for your friends? Why would you ever want to experience that alone? See, what are you going to do with your life? David Brooks, New York Times author, has an article called The Moral Bucket List. And in it, he he just kept talking about people who struck him, people who were fascinating, who who struck a chord in his soul in ways other people didn't. He wrote this, there are two sets of virtues in the world. There are resume virtues and there are eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are skills you bring to the marketplace, but eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind or brave or honest or faithful, or were you capable of deep love? He said, if you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack moral vocabulary. It's easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You forgive as long as you're not obviously hurting anybody and people seem to like you. You must be okay. But you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens up between your actual self and your desired self between you and those intranscendent souls you sometimes meet. Look, there's going to be a funeral one day, and it's going to be about you. And the question will be, what did you do with your life? Did you keep the invitation for you, or did you spend it giving it away? There was a great movie about 12 years ago called The Bucket List with Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. And in the movie, Jack Nicholson is this horrible person. He's greedy. He's lost all sorts of relationships with his family. He uses people. And then he suddenly gets cancer. And in the hospital, he meets Morgan Freeman, who's also dying of cancer. And they decide to go see the world together. And then Morgan Freeman begins to have an effect on Jack Nicholson that begins to change him, change how he, what he values, changes how he treats people. 
And then Morgan Freeman dies first. And Jack Nicholson says at his funeral, he's the only white guy in a room of all, of all, of all black people. He says, I hope that it doesn't sound selfish to me. But the last months of his life were the best months of my life. He saved me. And he knew it before I did. I'm deeply proud of this man. He found it worth it, worth his while to know me. In the end, I think it's safe to say that we brought some joy to one another's lives. So one day, when I go to some final resting place, if I happen to wake up next to a certain wall with a gate, I hope Carter's there to vouch for me and show me the ropes to the other side. What will you do with your life? Look, if that's true, two quick applications to close. If tonight you're, you're lazy or apathetic with your faith or it just feels distant, I want you to think of Christianity as a wedding invitation that's been sitting on your desk all year. Why are you ignoring that? What will it take for you to open it? Because you are still invited. But secondly, for those of you who call yourself a Christian, but feel bored and purposeless with it, it's time to start handing out invitations. Do you know that Jesus is waiting to pour you a drink and tell you the best stories? And maybe one way to embed that in your own soul is to invite someone else into it. Look, four times in this text, it says, hallelujah. It's the only time it says it in the entire New Testament. It's almost like four cannon blasts of George Frederick Handel's Messiah. Look, can you hear that? Or are you covering your ears with fig leaves? The groom with blood-stained garments, he's come for his bride. Take him. Let me pray. Lord, all of these questions are undressing to our soul. And so I pray that you would help us to think of your invitation into our lives, not with threat, but with the offer of a party. Lord, and I pray that it would impact us in such a way that many who need to be invited would, and you would use us, this little team at USC. Lord, would you, would you overwhelm us with the thought of that party to go invite somebody to it? In Christ's name, amen.